If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn and for our podcast today, we've got a conversation with the historian Charles Emerson. Charles's most recent book is Crucible, The Long End of the Great War and the Birth of a New World, 1917 to 1924. And it chronicles the global tumult that followed in the wake of the First World War. From the collapse of four huge empires to the rise of extreme new political ideologies, it's a period that was to shape the rest of the 20th century. BBC World History's editor Matt Elton spoke to Charles in our studio in Bristol to find out more. So your new book uh, is a study of the years between 1917 and 1924, um, which is obviously quite a big dynamic period of history. How did you approach uh, covering this period and why did you make that decision? Well, I, I wrote this book basically in the in the present tense. Uh, and what I was trying to do that way is to convey a sense of immediacy and a sense of possibility uh, and to try and follow the biographies of certain characters through these years from 1917 to 1924 and sort of lay it out as if it were essentially a, you know, almost almost like a screenplay, a film script. Um, and what I wanted by that is for the reader to first get a sense of the immediacy and possibility in those years, a sense that it wasn't actually entirely, um, you know, it wasn't entirely clear how the future would play out, um, but to really, but to really situate them in the, in, in the times. Uh, and so what I've done throughout the book is I've got quite 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 short entries going, you know, year by year and then season by season um, from 1917 through to 1924. You know, the shortest would be just a couple of lines describing a situation of maybe a few minutes, maybe a few hours. You know, the very longest is is a couple of pages. So there's that sort of diaristic approach to it, um, and hopefully that will that will draw the reader in and they can they can read it. They can read it really as they like. They can read it perhaps a little bit like a novel, uh, but also it means that if they're particularly interested in one character. Uh, or one particular place, then if they come across a place or character they're less interested in, they can sort of skip over that a bit and choose which narrative they're going to devote their time to as a reader. Mm. I was surprised by exactly how striking that approach is. Can you give us an example of how of how it works? Well, I'll give. I can. I can read out the the very first um, the very first entry for the for the book, which is in in the in the deep winter of nineteen seventeen. 
in uh, in Petrograd in Russia, uh, and that'll give you a sense of of how I'm doing it from the get go. So this is winter 1917 in Petrograd, Russia. It is a lurid affair. The press, though heavily censored, have a field day. A popular hate figure, a holy man accused of hijacking the imperial family, cuckolding the Tsar and leading Russia to ruin, has been murdered by one of Russia's most prominent aristocrats. Rasputin's mutilated body is laid to rest in the foundations of a new church at Tsarskoye Selo, the Tsar's estate just outside Petrograd. Nicholas Romanov is there, his German-born wife Alexandra and their four daughters. Their son Alexei is too ill to attend. Boards are placed on the ground to protect their clothes from the frozen mud. Alexandra is in tears. Russia is in crisis. The price of bread and apples and cabbage and underwear and everything else keeps going up. The soldiers' boots are worn out. There are rumours of a possible palace coup. The French ambassador is told of plans to assassinate the Tsarina. Nicholas is tired. He prays fervently for salvation. So that's the, you know, and then I, I carry that through the through the book, which I have to say was quite a, um, it was quite a frightening choice to make uh, in terms of writing a history book where you're, you're writing it in the present tense. Um, but I hope it works, yeah. uh, and I think it, it gives that sense of, um, you know, I want to I want to put people there because after all, we're describing a set of very very complex events. Uh, and rather than going through a whole ream of statistics or acronyms, I think one way of trying to convey that that, that story is is through, you know, getting people emotionally invested in in the characters. Something that interests me is how you decided how to focus on the scale, like what proportion of the narrative to spend in different place places, how much to write about each entry. I mean, how how complex was that as a process? It's a very difficult process um, because you're trying. You know, you know, you, you can't um, you can't expect the reader to spend too much time on one particular subject, one particular area. Um, so I, I didn't want any entry to be more than more than really, you know, two or three pages. Uh, but then, of course, there is the there is the ordering and how things fit together. And sometimes, very often, in fact, you would find, you know, a nice dovetailing of stories where um, you might find that one person is talking, for example, about something happening in. In, in Vienna, and then you can shift the scene. You know, the next scene can be Vienna, so that you you can you can find these various these various through lines in writing the book. But you know, hopefully that comes across as relatively seamless. But it's very it's very tough to to put it together. Talking about those through lines, this is obviously a period in which there's a huge amount happening. What do you think connects it thematically? Would you say? Um, Chaos and reordering of the world, essentially, um, because we start in we start in 1917, and there, you know, we're starting in Petrograd, 1917, murder of Rasputin, but the Russian Empire is still there. Nicholas is still the Tsar. By the end of that year, uh, you know, Nicholas is overthrown. The Russian Empire is no more. It's on the point of collapse, uh, and and Europe itself is in is in tumult. And then through the through the course of the years from 1917 to 1924, you have this almost you know, constant set of events of civil wars, of revolutions, of cultural upheavals, social upheavals, economic upheavals. And it's only really by 1924 that that begins to settle or it gives the, Europe gives the impression of having settled. Uh, and I think this is a really, a really critical period in, in modern history. And, you know, in Britain, we tend to focus on 1918 being the end of the First World War, Armistice Day, you know, November the 11th, 1918. But in reality, uh, if you were in 
most other parts of Europe, indeed other parts of, of the British Isles, in Ireland, for example, then the war didn't end in 1918 at all. It simply mutated into these other sets of, of convulsions and, uh, and political upheavals. Is it fair to say that at the heart of this story is the collapse of four massive empires? Yes. I mean, again, if we go back to, to 1917, the Russian Empire, at that time, at the beginning of 1917, I think it was people would have generally thought that if peace came and, and people were hoping that peace would come in, in 1917, that in a way the world that had existed before the war could have been somehow reanimated, recreated, brought back to life, um, or maybe things would just continue as they had been before, and those empires would survive. Again, by the end of 1917, um, that no longer seems to be the case. The Russian Empire is already gone. Um, in Vienna, um, people are very worried about the future of the, the Habsburg Empire. The German Empire also is, is, is on its knees. Uh, and so with that sense of an old world being swept away and the possibilities of destruction, there's also the possibilities of recreation and what emerges from the fires of war. Uh, and so you, get a, you set up a very, very interesting tension between those who are on their way out uh, in 1970, 1918, 1919, and those who see opportunity uh, in the disorder and chaos and try to create a new world uh, out of the ashes of the old. Do you think there are people then who were very consciously aware of the fact this was a period in which new kind of orders could be created? Was it that conscious? Uh, yes, I think it absolutely is. I think it is absolutely that conscious. Um, you know, one, one of the other characters which I followed through the book is um, is Vladimir Lenin. Uh, and we meet him quite early on in the book in Zurich, uh, where he's living above, above a butcher's shop. Uh, and, you know, is this he's this emigre who's not particularly well known, even in, in, you know, even in Russia, even in socialist circles in Russia, or worker circles in Russia. Uh, and there's some doubt as to whether he'll ever return to Russia and certainly whether he'll ever lead a worldwide socialist revolution. Uh, and yet the events which occur in the course of that year, 1917, suddenly put him into a position to actually to affect his 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 dream uh and so that there is there is a sense in these years and it's not just of course to do with um to do with um to do with vladimir lenin but there is this sense that yes these are particular times and that in a way there's there's an urgency to it that the 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 chaos of the times and the possibility of the times must be grasped so there's a, there's a lot of energy uh, behind a lot of these characters because they think this is their moment and their moment may, may not last very long. And the same could be said of, for example, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, you know, the United States joins the war in 1917 uh, and Woodrow Wilson is fired up with this notion that this is America's opportunity and particularly his opportunity to create, the, to recreate the world in, in almost in the image or his sort of, um, uh, his received image uh, or his ideal image of, of America. There are some huge characters here and something I like is the fact that because we follow them through the book, you almost see them in a new light because you're tracing their careers as the book evolves. Is there anyone who you came to see in a different way because of writing this book or anyone that you'd like readers to view differently? Well, I think it's, it's very, very important to follow these trajectories through the book because there are so many big characters like, you know, like Mussolini, like Lenin, like, like Hitler, like Freud, like Einstein. These are big names. Uh, and we tend to view them as if they were, first of all, we tend, to, we tend to view their trajectories as if they were sort of developing almost in isolation from one another, whereas in fact they weren't because they were often looking over their shoulders at, uh, at each other uh, and in some ways learning from each other. Um, um, but also uh, there's a, um, 
there's a sense in which they're, they're learning on the job as they go along, uh, which I think is I think is instructive for how political ideologies develop and how political careers are developed or fail. Mm. Um, you know, one prime example of that um, is Adolf Hitler, who is a of course a, a, a major character in the book and who I follow from um, from 1917 when he's a he's a, a field runner on the on the Western Front. Um, through to 1924, when he gets out of Landsberg jail, having been imprisoned for his part in the in the in, in the Munich Putsch, and I think it's I think it's important to see um, this political figure actually trying out. Try, for example, in Munich in the in 1919, 1920, 1921, trying out different political lines on his audience, and seeing the way in which there's an interrelationship between. Um, uh, you know the the various ideologies he's picked up, the scraps of ideas he's picked up from various sorts over the years, and how that's slowly being formed into what becomes um, the ideology of the Nazi Party. Um, going back to uh, Wilson, who you mentioned there, um, what was the experience for America of the end of the First World War, and how should we understand that to understand this period? Well, on the one hand, of course. You know, America joins the war in 1917, 1918, victory comes, and a large part of that is due to uh, the American contribution. Um, so there's a sense that this is this is America's, you know, grand entry in a way into, into world affairs, and America's prestige is running very, very high. And so, of course, is Woodrow Wilson's personal prestige running tremendously high, which is why when he comes to Europe at the end of 1918 um, to participate in the, in the peace conference in Paris... Uh, you know, he really believes that he can he can remake he can remake the world. So that's that's one part of it. Um, but another part of it is that uh, after the war, you have an economic crisis in the United States, uh, and this isolationist, uh, nativist, uh, anti-immigrant streak—a streak that's afraid of uh, of communism. What's happening? The chaos in Europe being transported across the sea back to the United States—that's also very very strong. So you see an, an, an initial sense of you know America, uh, America's prestige very very high in the world, but also this fear in the United States that actually um, America is at risk, that it's vulnerable, um, that you know a Bolshevik revolution could occur in some form in uh, in, the, you know, in the United States. You get this pushback in the form of um, first of all in the form of in the form of the Red Scare in 1919, uh, where there's a um, there's a, a after after Woodrow Wilson has fallen ill, he's essentially out of commission, has a stroke. Um, you have a very activist attorney general who's trying to lock up all foreign radicals uh, and indeed expel foreign radicals from the United States, and this tremendous fear of of, of uh, revolution. Um, but then you also have a little bit later on, and linked to that, uh, you have a um, new policies on immigration which exclude or vastly reduce the amount of immigration which the United States will, will accept in the future. And so, you sort of ha you sort of have U.S. history, if you like, going into reverse. Um, there's one particular episode which I think is is very powerful, which is um, the expulsion of foreign radicals on the USAT Burford in December 1919, after the various radicals have been rounded up in this sort of dragnet operation, and then 230 odd uh, are expelled um, to Russia. I think around around Christmas Eve, I think it is, uh, on 1919. And for me, there's something quite compelling in the notion of these um, these individuals, most mostly of Eastern European origins, being sent to Ellis Island and then being sent to Russia, which is almost exactly 
the US history of the 19th century in reverse, where, of course, America was the, the country or the United States was the, the nation greasing the, um, uh, the refugees from, from Europe. And this, this goes into reverse in this era. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. If, if you're imagining a world where you think that, that sort of the train lines, are, the, the tram lines or the train lines are set, the world is going to progress, you know, along this, this, this future. It's already laid out. And then what happens in 1917, 1918, basically the train lines buckle. You've got no idea where you're going. And that chaos creates, um, creates opportunity. Another aspect of the US in this period, of course, is its treatment of race and racial sort of tensions. Uh, what did your book reveal to you about, about that story? Well, it's, this, is an, this is a tremendously important um, period for, for race in, in the United States and indeed, and indeed across the world. Uh, and what happens in the United States is you have um, African-American soldiers who have been who have fought in France. Uh, they come back to the United States and there is this real sense that um, they've paid their dues to American society, that simply waiting for American society to um, uh, respect the rights of its uh, of its black citizens is no longer acceptable. Uh, and this becomes a the war and the experience of the war becomes really becomes really the starting point for um, for the for the Harlem Renaissance um, and for this this idea that actually the time has come to for African Americans to claim their rights rather than to just wait for them to somehow 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 drop from the sky. Uh, on the other hand, uh, this is also this is also a period when the Ku Klux Klan becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. Uh, where this sort of nativist streak of white America um, comes comes more to the fore, and so race, um, you know, fifty years after the the Civil War, you know, race comes back into the into the foreground. It's never really gone away. It comes back into the real foreground of uh, of, of American politics. Moving from one superpower to another, if you like, um, is it fair to say this is a story dominated by Russia and the actions of of, of that nation? Well, I wouldn't say it was. It doesn't completely dominate, but yes, it's a very large part of the book um, because because Russia is at the, at the is at the origins of the of the revolution, which which provides quite a lot of motive force uh, for the hopes and fears that people have in Europe and indeed in America at this time. Um, but also, of course, because the Russian Empire collapses, and that leaves there's a civil war which follows from that, and that leaves real really chaos across across Eurasia, and different parties who see. The opportunities that they can uh, you see, see 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 opportunities in that. So, for example, you have as one of these sort of secondary conflicts, which comes after 1918, you have Western intervention uh, in the Russian Civil War, which is often uh, often sort of forgotten, but it's but it's an absolutely fascinating episode of of Russian indeed indeed world history. And you also have, and this is something quite quite important for today as well, uh, is you have the emergence of the brief emergence of an independent Ukraine. Um, and you know, looking at looking at the current situation in Eastern Europe, uh, indeed the current situation in Ukraine, um, you know, Ukrainians look back to this to this period as being a very very important sort of first try at statehood, if you like. Um, so, you know, Russia is Russia is absolutely a big part of the narrative, and also, um, to be entirely frank, uh, any student of history will know that, and particularly Russian history will know, it just provides lots and lots and lots of examples of. Huge, absurd 
tragic, heroic experiences. Um, uh, and it's um, and I try to convey as much of that as I as I as I can in 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 the book. The, the sheer scale of of what's going on uh, in Russia at, at that time. This is a period that sees the sort of emergence and the growth of a whole set of ideologies: fascism, communism, all all, all of them. Um, why do you think it was such a hotbed for this kind of political ideology? Well, I think it's you know when you have a completely chaotic period, when you have a, when you have a, a time where if if you're imagining a world where you think that, that sort of the train lines are the, the tram lines or the train lines are set the world is going to progress you know along this 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 future it's already laid out and then what happens in 1917 1918 basically the train lines buckle you've got no idea where you're going and that chaos creates um creates opportunity and it creates a sense of um you know a, a sense of a sense of the possible. It creates it, it creates space for these very unlikely characters, um, such as Hitler, such as Lenin. You know, you could even include Freud in that. I think you know he's this rather eccentric, mushroom-picking Austrian doctor. Um, and by 1924, he's considered to be a great superstar who's unlocked the secrets of the of the of the subconscious. This this churn in this chaos creates opportunities for for new ideologies to 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 emerge. And I think one thing which is very interesting about that is that. Although we tend to view, you know, fascism and communism as developing, um, or surrealism for that matter, or psychoanalysis as as sort of such big um, cultural events or ideologies that we tend to view them almost in in isolation, as if they developed just along on their own steam. In fact, what you see in this period is is their exponents, their leaders, looking at look, looking at each other, learning from each other in terms of tactics in terms of strategy and also in terms of um in terms of in terms of the development the, the development of their their ideas so i think it's useful to look at them together are there any other individuals who you think you'd like to see the importance of foregrounded more than it has been well i think there are certain characters who because they failed because they were less successful they tend to be a, a little bit brushed out of the historical record um so i think one thing i'm trying to do throughout this book is 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 get people to think about the what ifs, um, you know, what if Lenin had survived? Uh, sorry, had not survived uh, uh, his the, the assassination attempt of, of Fannie Kaplan in, in nineteen eighteen. You know, what if he died? What would have happened then? Um, you know, what would have happened if Stalin had not been successful in in essentially shutting out Trotsky, and if Trotsky had taken the helm after the death of uh, after the death of Lenin? And one of those characters to me is is, is Rosa Luxemburg, and um, She's she was this great Polish Jewish um, revolutionary um, who played a major role in the abortive um, Spartacist, that's to say, communist uh, revolution of of nineteen nineteen, and she had a very very different conception of of what a a communist revolution should look like to that of to that of Vladimir Lenin, a much more decentralized one, uh, one where. Um, sort of di- the dictatorship of the party was was much less essential, uh, and I think it's interesting to imagine what would have happened if, say, um, Rosa Luxemburg's brand of, of revolution had been successful, uh, and Lenin's and Lenin said not. Would we have? Would we, would we have a? Would that experiment have played out differently? Um, would we have a different view of of the uh, the merits or horror of uh, of communism as a result? Mm. These were years of extraordinary violence, weren't they? I mean, 
they, they really were. And not, and not just in, you know, one, one conflict which is often, I think, forgotten in the UK, somewhat ironically, um, is, the, um, is the Anglo-Irish War and the, and the Irish Civil War. And I found the um, sort of the, the, the intimacy of that violence. There's a, there's a great historical record that the Bureau of Military History um, which are these various interviews conducted by the Irish state in the 1940s of those who'd fought in the Anglo-Irish War and in the Irish Civil War. And these are all online. Uh, and you can, you, you know, you read these very, very personal accounts of, um, you know, conflicts in a little village, you know, these attacks on a pub, um, people who knew each other uh, engaging in engaging in conflict. And so you, 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 you get a sense of the 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 intimacy that 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 um that these conflicts could often have um and at the same time which is quite far removed from you know the huge scale and numbers and mechanization of the first world war itself so you have these you have a huge amount of violence continuum of violence really which stretches from 1917 um through the early 1920s or from from the war through the 19 through the early 1920s um, but often it's a violence of a different quality, of a different nature, sometimes more extreme, sometimes more intimate, sometimes less bounded by convention um, because there isn't military law at play. Uh, there are elements of, of, of revenge, for example, which come into it. And, and these seep very, very deep into, uh, into the European polity. Given the extent and the nature of this violence, um, is there much lightness in the book? Did you try to find the kind of the humour in in these stories? Well, I mean, yes, I do because <laughs> I mean, I, I want people to have a laugh, and I hope I hope if people read the book, they will um, they will find plenty of humour because there is, of course, humour in life, uh, and there is there is something very very there's there's an awful lot of absurdity um, in uh, in what happens in this in this period, uh, and there's a lot of you know there's there's a lot of things not going as people expect. There's a lot of chance. Uh, and a lot of these characters are, you know, tremendously pompous, and uh, and so I mean, there's one wonderful um, uh, uh, phrase which is in the in the in the Fumé adventure, when um, when Gabriele D'Annunzio, who's this extraordinary poet, aviator, propagandist for Italian nationalism, and um, not liking the way in which the peace terms are panning out in Paris, he invades this the, the town of Fiume, which is which has uh, which has a mixed population, and tries to claim it for for Italy. So this very very sort of grand um, grand theatrical act, and Benito Mussolini acts as his propagandist um, behind the scenes in in uh, in Milan, and Denunzio um, says. You know, but you know, why why is it that you haven't been able to create a, a revolution in Italy? Why is it that I've done this great thing in Fiume, and you haven't been able to overturn the the the, uh, the Italian government? And he says, um, and Adonuncio writes to to Mussolini, you know, why don't you why don't you why don't you prick your belly to let some of the air out? So you have these these extraordinary phrases, uh, which are in the diaries or in the letters of various characters, uh, and you know, they're they're pretty funny, and I think. I think pricking some of the pomposity of some of these characters is also um, uh, is also something I'm I'm keen to do. Mm. Why did you decide to end the book in 1924 specifically? Well, there are lots of reasons. I mean, one you know one big reason is that 1924 is in fact the first year that there is not a war uh, on the European continent. So it is a it's a natural place to, a natural place to end because up to then you've got the you've got the the, uh, the war between the Greco-Turkish War, you've got the Russian Civil War, these other conflicts. Um, but also, it's um, this is the year in which Lenin dies, 
and around the same time Woodrow Wilson dies as well. So those 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 two ideas, one of world revolution, uh, a world um, communist revolution, and the other of a uh, a new world created on, if you like, the principles of you know Wilsonian liberal order. Um, those two ideologies, those two ideas, um, have really died by 1924. Uh, not completely died, but they're very much on the way out. They've been replaced by other things. And they've been replaced by other other characters as well. Uh, they've been replaced by by Hitler. They've been replaced by Stalin. Um, and and so it, it, it does seem it does seem a natural point to close off this that particular era of uh, of European history. And then, of course, you get into the to the to the roaring 1920s. But underneath the surface of things, um, fascism, communism, um, modern anti-Semitism have really got into uh, got into Europe and America by that time. The world has changed, and it doesn't take much. Five years later, ten years later, with the Great Depression and with the rise of Nazism, again for these things to um, to, to reemerge. And I think that really that really structures European history for the next. Um, next 20 years. Is this uh, then what you would see as the start of the West collapse from the inside? It is absolutely the, the, the start of the collapse, the, the collapse of the West. Indeed, the, the, one of the best voices on that actually is a, um, is a, a Chinese um, philosopher um, called, uh, called Yan Fu, um, who was writing in 1919. And he was describing how um, the war showed how Europe had basically collapsed into what did he say? Sh- shameless selfishness and and slaughter, uh, and so it's not just the fact that there's a there's a lack of confidence in the West about the West. You get that with you know books like Oswald Spengler writes a book called The Decline of the West in These Years, which is tremendously popular in Germany, but also outside the West, uh, in 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 the various empires of the European powers, the notion that somehow Europe represents progress, the future. Uh, modernization that Europe is the example to be looked up to um, that's that's very much not the case after the first world war and so you start getting and I don't really go into it very much in the book although I do discuss um, the Amritsar massacre of 1919 is you you do you do begin to get um, empires falling apart fraying fraying at the edges because they've lost their uh, their you know their claimed moral right to rule. Um, so it, it, it's happening at both ends, if you like. Mm. We're heading now towards the end of this decade. Um, to what extent do the echoes of the period you write about still manifest themselves today in today's world? Well, I mean, there's there's one very um, there are various issues described in the book. So, for example, you know, looking at the um, uh, looking at the, the Anglo-Irish War and the uh, the Irish Civil War, you know, we're obviously still dealing with the echoes of that because we're still dealing with the uh, with the consequences of of Irish independence and Irish partition, um, we're also dealing with um, the way in which uh, the Middle East was um, divided in the peace settlements after the First World War. Um, indeed, we're dealing with um, you know if you look at uh, Ukraine, and again, this is a the Ukrainian independence. Um, the, the, their first try was in these years. Uh, I was travelling earlier this year in in Hungary. Uh, and in the the entire narrative of Viktor Orban's government in Hungary is based on um, the way in which Hungary was um, reduced, greatly reduced in size after the First World War. And that, that 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 narrative of grievance is absolutely key to to the current Hungarian government. 
so that's part of it. But I think also we're living through similar times in the sense of um, perhaps a a consensus around the way in which society ought to operate, the sort of the balance of of uh, of, uh, of power within within society. I think that if there was a a broad consensus around you know the relationship between the economy and society, for example, that's really frayed at the edges and beginning to fall apart uh, in uh, in our times. Mm. And if we look back at these times when there was, you know, an even more dramatic collapse, then we can see the similarities there, and also the rise of, of populist strongmen, because that's one of the the key issues of this of this time, nineteen seventeen to nineteen twenty four, is the rise of these of these these populists in different of, of different varieties across Europe uh, uh, and indeed in and to some degree in America. Does writing history as journalism, almost kind of in the present tense? shift how you see or how we should see historical change, um, the wider forces of historical development. Do you think we need to rethink the forces that shape historical change in light of this approach? Well, I think people should view history as being exciting. They should view it as being relevant. Uh, and they should also view it as not a... Um, how can I put this? But one advantage of writing in the present tense is to say, you know, it wasn't a done deal at the time. These, you know, things could have come from left field and entirely old, maybe not entirely, but certainly altered the course or alter the course of events. So I think there's a story there also of uh, of chance, but also a story of agency as well. Uh, and I think it's important for people to looking back at history, not to view it simply as being the product of these great immovable forces, uh, which no one can possibly alter. Uh, but it is the result also of chance and of individuals making decisions one way or the other mm-hmm. um, to do things or not do things. And I think that's a, I think that's that's an that's an important, if you like, quite positive message out of what is otherwise a very dramatic uh, and and destructive, but also creative era of European history. That was Charles Emerson. His book. Crucible, The Long End of the Great War and the Birth of a New World, 1917 to 1924, is out now, published by Bodley Head. You can find plenty more on 20th century history from across the globe at our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Monday, the 23rd of December, for our annual festive podcast quiz. Quiz.